You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. After the New York Encounter, its organizers, and its massive army of volunteers, welcome. Uh, I'd like to give a special thanks to the Human Adventure Books for publishing the book that will be uh, the topic of this conversation and for helping to organize the event. I'll read you a few short uh, bios uh, reminding you that there are, the full bios are available on the New York uh, Encounter website. I'll start with Rita Simmons on my far right. She received her BA from Hofstra University and her MA from Teachers College, Columbia University. She's a three-time winner of the best original poetry category at the annual Catholic Press Association Awards. She has published three books of poetry and recently a memoir about her husband, the late Frank Simmons, entitled Convicted by Mercy, The Journey of Frank Simmons from the Streets to Sanctity. Dr. Sullivan, my close right, is a professor emeritus and faculty fellow at the University of Notre Dame, where he was professor of world religions and professor of anthropology from 2004 to 2012. From 1990 to 2004, he served as, as the director of the Harvard University Center for the Study of World Religions, an international center, and taught as professor of world religions at Harvard. He is a lifetime fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences he completed his PhD in the Comparative History of Religions at the University of Chicago under the direction of Mircea Eliade. Eliade. Did I get that right? Okay. Uh, and he also taught there. Uh, so I'll turn it over to our, uh, our speakers then. Oh, the, the video. Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, we're going to watch a short video first. Thank you. Uh, a short screening of video. Yeah, yeah this is the um, video of Frank's presence six years ago at New York Encounter. I have joy today. And to be able to say it with the drama of life and the way that my life had this contrast today is so beautiful, it's beyond description. I was brought up Roman Catholic. I knew all about God and everything. But to be honest with you, the true love of my life was my mother. You know, I, her love was so unconditional. So subsequently, you know, when you, you put all your eggs in one basket, you realize at times things can be taken away from you. And uh, when she died, I felt that that unconditional love was gone. To say that I was hurt is an understatement, but who was I to blame? God is a good one. So I went out and did a lot of drugs lost everything my mother had worked for, the house. But, you know, I just went on because I didn't care. I thought that no matter what, how could I lose? If I killed myself or something, I'd only do the worst thing that could happen is I could end up with my mother. One night, I had sold my coat, sold my shoes. I was sitting in an abandoned building on the steps. I had no money, nothing to get any more drugs with. And I said, well, I just robbed the next guy that's coming by and then I'll just keep moving. I'll get another pair of shoes, another. And uh, I hear footsteps. So I'm like, oh good. I look around and here's this guy, do-dee-do, coming up the sidewalk. I said, perfect, I got it. As he got closer, 
he was wearing black and he had something white by his neck. And I was like, oh man, it's really getting bad now. I'm about to rob a priest, man. <laughs> Dang, man, how, how low can you go, you know? Anyways, he got closer. I said, you know what? Let me give him a break. If he don't say nothing to me, I'm gonna let him go. I'll find another guy. He goes by, though, you know, and he stops right in the corner. I'm like, here it goes. And he turns around and he says, Young man, if you think God is going to come and lay down here with you in the gutter, he won't. You know why? Because he's holy. He said, but if you ask him, he'll come and take you out of this gutter. And I said, man, you better get to stepping, man, because I'm ready to jump on you now. You know what I mean? Go. And as he went up the street and turned the corner, and it wasn't far, I said, forget it, I'm going to rob him. So I went running around the corner, he was gone. I looked, there was no lights on and no light. He was gone, and it tortured me that night. It tortured me so bad, I felt so exposed for what I really was, because I didn't even think I was a person then. I didn't even know what a person was. I don't even think I knew what love was. I didn't love myself. So, I was tortured and tortured and tortured. And I said, you know what, I can't take this. It's like one of those Wolfman movies. This, the full moon comes up, I turn into this monster. But when do I turn back into me? I'm in the monster all the time. I couldn't take it. So, I wanted to end it. I come up with brilliant ideas when I think by myself. Suicide! Hey, yeah, that'll put an end to everything. As I'm coming up the street, I'm gonna go to the train station and jump in front of a train, brilliant. And as I was walking up the street, I was yelling at God, saying, you're not real, you're not real. You're not real, you have that picture on the wall. Let me see you stop me from what I'm about to do right now. You know, you're all that powerful, you're all, stop me. And as I was walking, I can't believe this. Something, it cried out from inside of me. It cried out and said, and it came through my mouth and said, God, if you stop me from what I'm about to do, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And I was like, what? What is this? And I thought of a guy that told me, he said, look, if you really get into real deep trouble, call this number, 1-800-WE-DETOX or whatever. And it's just so convenient that there's this phone there. And uh, I went to the phone, it was a toll-free number, I dialed it and called it. I said, man, I'm, I'm a drug addict. It's really hopeless, I don't know why I'm making this phone call, but I'm about to kill myself, help me. They took me to a hospital, and uh, it, it was like a rehab. And I said, this hospital looks familiar. Yeah, they said, yeah, this used to be Hempstead General Hospital and whatever. And I was in shock. Hempstead General Hospital was where my dead mother worked. And I realized right then and there that someone still loved me, even though they weren't present. And what is it that the heart is really looking for? Isn't it looking for love and relationship? Right then, I encountered the very thing that I wasn't aware of, and I'm still living it now. It doesn't end. I'm living in it now, and it just happens that I'm here with you. Beautiful. I had never met Frank, so this I'm meeting him for the first time in video. How, how many people here know Frank and Rita Simmons? Oh wow, I'm late to the party. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, you're going to love this book. I, I'm so grateful to you for inviting me here to talk about it. It's really a love story. I think you've written us an incredible love story, a page turner. Um, not knowing either of you, I just was speeding from one chapter to the next, 
watching and how does this turn out because at any point it seems terribly unpredictable and um, since we're talking this weekend about crossing the divide I wonder if you thought of your life that way meeting Frank and having distances between you uh, each of you on your own paths crossing important divides is that something that resonates for you this image of crossing the divide as you think about your own story and Frank's yes it was, I was not on uh, the vocational path of matrimony when I met Frank. I was uh, pursuing a vocation uh, in Memory Stolmany, which is uh, the consecrated group of uh, communion and liberation. And I was living in the house uh, with five women in, in Riverdale, and I was an, a novice and getting ready to see if this was a something permanent for me. And I was experiencing growing restlessness within myself. Um, it just, I felt that there was, there was something missing in my life. And so um, I was invited to be part of a theater company and we produced uh, a play called uh, The Sacrament of Memory about the life of St. Therese. Um, and that's where I met my friend David Burns. And David Burns worked on the George Washington Bridge in a little um, satellite of the Volunteers of America. And Frank was his intern. At the time, Frank was living on Ward's Island in a shelter. And then he would come and assist David, uh, taking the homeless off the street, trying to get them to the shelter system whatever, you know, they could help the people with. Um, and David really loved Frank and he really relied on Frank because Frank, having uh, lived a life of homelessness for many years, he knew the streets. He knew the streets very well. And so he was like David's right hand. What David didn't know was that Frank was still in the throes of terrible drug addiction because Frank was really a very highly, high-functioning person. Um, so he could kind of pull it off. Um, so David said to me, you know, I know you're living in this house of, of women, and you know, Thanksgiving is coming up. I have to go home to Albany, and I feel like Frank is gonna be alone on Thanksgiving. Do you think you could ask the women in your house if you could invite him for Thanksgiving dinner. And I said, sure, I'll ask. And I did, and everybody was like, yeah, why not? That's a great idea. And so I went to, to see Frank, and I invited him to Thanksgiving dinner. And he, he looked at me, he was um, very tall and very thin then. Um, he was wearing shoes, which were too small on him because he had to get shoes from the shelter. Um, and he was, um, you know, hugging this, this very chubby woman. <laughs> I just remember, you know, he had his big long arms, you know, and he put his arms around her, was encouraging her, you know, this woman from the street. And, um, and so he came over to me and I asked him if he wanted to come for Thanksgiving and he started to cry. And he said, you know, it's been so long since anyone has invited me into their home. And he said, I can't tell you how much it means to me. It means so much to me. He said, but I'm sorry, I can't accept. And I looked at him and I said, are you sure? He said, I'm sure. He said, thank you. Just the fact that you invited me, that, that's enough. That, I thank you for that. And so I said, okay. And um, I went, we went our separate ways and uh, I celebrated Thanksgiving and I got a call from David shortly after that. And he said, Rita, have you, have you heard from Frankie? He called him Frankie. And I said, no, why? He said, well, he hasn't shown up to work and that's not like him. You know, Frankie never misses work. And I said, I don't know. I mean, I haven't 
heard anything from him. I, I invited him for Thanksgiving. He said he couldn't come, you know, and he said, well, just pray. Please pray because I don't have a good feeling about this. I think something bad has happened to him, you know? And so I prayed and David prayed and all the women in my house prayed and Frank got in touch with David and he said, look, man, he said, I lied to you. I've been using drugs all along. I'm really sorry. He said, but now I'm in a rehab and I can't, you know, I can't, I, I need this time in the rehab now. And basically that call came to David after that experience, uh, which Frank describes in the video. So that's what happened to him over that Thanksgiving. Like right after I had met him and invited him to Thanksgiving, that's when he went to the streets and, you know, sold his shoes and jacket and was going to rob the priest who disappeared, you know. So he became convicted. That was his first, you know, as the title of the book is Convicted by Mercy. So that was like the first kind of stage in Frank becoming convicted. Um, so that started this unlikely friendship. That's big divide. I mean, um, here I was living in a house of religious women and here was a man, you know, right off the streets. Um, so that was, that was the first big... The wise guy ending wants to say, how'd that work out, did it? <laughs> <laughs> here you are. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. It is incredible that you talk about meeting on, on a bridge, the bridge, George Washington Bridge, and we know in Frank's story, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge looms large. And of course, maybe the greatest bridge of all that, that Frank learned to speak about with such incredible moving language and testimony from his own witnessing was the Bridge of the Cross. And uh, you passed to me something that I didn't see in the book that was the homily that Monsignor Vaccaro gave on the fifth anniversary of, of uh, Frank's death. And I wanted just to uh, use a couple of lines from there because I think in terms of crossing the divide, it brings a convergence between the theme of Frank's life, your life together, and uh, the theme that's being probed this weekend. So this is just from the middle of the homily, which is very beautiful in every regard. He said, this is Monsignor Vaccaro. Vaccari. Vaccari, I'm sorry, yep. My wife would me she's an Italian from Rome. <laughs> those, those final syllables really matter. <laughs> you don't say panini when you go to the, uh, you know, Starbucks, you get arguments with the, the barista there. Uh, it's not, it's a singular, it's not plural, all right. So, he says, very often we speak of life as a journey. We make decisions further down the road and we cross that bridge when we come to it. There were many spiritual bridges that Frank crossed in his life. Many of them were crossed with the help of Rita, who helped him find the bridge to God. But the bridge most associated with him is the Brooklyn Bridge. He crossed that bridge so many times, but we remember especially the years he led communion and liberation's way of the cross over the bridge. He held the cross in his hands. He carried that cross, wrapping his long arms around it and leading the way. The way of the cross represented his journey from the streets to a home from restlessness to peace, from addiction to freedom, from misery to happiness and joy. And the cross certainly represents the sting of death. It represents the pains 
of suffering and the agony of that pain. But the sting of death disappears in the mystery of faith and in the mystery of the cross. And Monsignor Bacari goes on to say very beautiful things, I think deeply embedded in Frank's experience and his way of, of spelling it out. Um, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, when I first read the manuscript, before it was published, I thought, this is a parable for our times, largely because Frank, in his own life, embodied, and you with him, crossing over so many divides that we encounter in our, com in our communities today. You know, from addiction to freedom from such, from loneliness and abandonment. You know, he had he'd been abandoned to the extent where his homeless uh, colleagues, if you want to say, deposited him in a dumpster more than once, thinking that his spasms were just the final spasms of someone who was dead and gone. And so the best they could do is just, you know, treat him like refuse and get rid of him. Um, as he said many times, it doesn't get lower than that. To cross over from there, to the leader of this community and being able to witness to his absolute firm conviction, as you say, about God's mercy laying hands on him. It's just, it's a divide that um, you hope for any and all of us, but so many in our communities and in ourselves are encountering that abyss in the center of our lives. And Frank, I think just to read him, at my age, I'm 71, I was so glad to read this story at this time in my life, and I feel I've been given a very blessed life. But we're always crossing that abyss of solitude, that abyss of the fear of the loss of God or the loss of ourself and our self-understanding. So he was incredible at that. So I thought that he, his story and the way you've written it is a parable for our time. And, and what I meant by that was that, mm, uh, well, I was drawing on this French thinker, Henri Cobain, he was an Islamicist, he lived in Tehran a lot of his life, but he founded a university in, in Nanterre in France, the University of St. John of Jerusalem, and he believed in what he called spiritual chivalry, a kind of spiritual tradition that especially undergirded the Abrahamic traditions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And he felt it was the duty of people in those spiritual churches especially to raise history from the level of being what he called one damn thing after another to the level that of a parable, to where your life took on a symbolic and significant meaning, to where your life stood for something. And I hear in Frank's message, as he ages and matures and as he sadly enters into more and more challenge with his health and his pain, that his life, especially his suffering, had meaning. Could you say something about that, that transformation that you saw him make? And obviously, you're making it with him, and maybe even a catalyst in his developing this. It's very interesting that a man who, yes, he was raised Catholic, but you know, once his, his mother died at the age of 17, he just completely turned his back on his faith. Um, so he didn't, he wasn't really familiar with you know, like the lives of the saints or, you know, a lot of the terminology that we would use. Um, and yet he understood things um, in, a re in a remarkable way without having to read about them. Um, very early on, so, so, so we, um, we became friends and then eventually, you know, it became clear that, okay, you know, you're a man, I'm a woman, you know, <laughs> and uh, and we liked and we liked to be together. You know, we liked to talk to each other. You know, and so, you know, it's just the natural thing that happens. And um, however, going back to crossing the divide, our relationship was fraught with difficulties. We had two completely different ideas of what a courtship should look like. I don't even think Frank believed in courtships. You know, it was just, you know, there was no such thing as a date. You know, it was just like hanging out. You know, and I don't know. Watching was, boxing. Or watching boxing or the Yankees. You know, I knew all the Yankee players. You know, Derek Jeter, Jorge Posada, Jason Giambi on first base. You know, I mean, I knew everybody. It was amazing. You know. Um, and 
But I was, um, but I knew, I knew that um, his way of, of viewing a relationship was not, was not my way and it wasn't really gonna work and we wouldn't be able to sustain it. Like we would have to get married. And that was a big jump, you know, for Frank from living on the streets and the kind of life that he was living, you know, even though he was a believer and he had a very strong experience of God's mercy, you know, it's, he still had to uh, adjust to what a life of faith was, you know, practically. And, um, and so many, many times, you know, we'd, we'd talk and, you know, he'd want things one way, I'd want things another, and we just could not, we could not get over our differences. And many, many times we broke up, many times I was crying. We used to go to this Chinese restaurant on 86th Street on the east side, which isn't there anymore. And, um, and I would just sit there and cry because we just didn't understand each other at all. And Frank would say, would you stop crying? Everybody thinks I'm beating you. He's <laughs> like, look at how they're looking at me. You see how they're looking at me? <laughs> so after we broke up for like the third time, you know, I, I really, really missed him, even though I said, that's it, no more, I'm not going back to him, I'm done, you know. And one day I just drove to his apartment and I just rang the bell and I just like, you know, I just wanted to see him, I wanted to be with him and he was really happy to see me. And then I told him right away though, I said, but you know, nothing's changed. I mean, we can't go back to where we were. You know, we have to somehow move forward. And we're talking about it, trying to overcome our differences. And then finally I said, look, I said, why don't we just offer to Christ all of the pain that we have right now in trying to get along with each other? Why don't we just give it to him and see what he'll do with it? And I thought Frank was going to roll his eyes, you know, or something like that, but he really became enlivened by this proposal. <laughs> And he's like, yeah, that's a good idea, you know? And he really, you know? And so it struck a chord in him. It, it, it struck a truth in him. Like he really wanted to follow that, uh, that suggestion. And so as soon as we started doing that, things, things became easier, things became lighter. And then one day he just came to me and said, God put it in my heart that you're my wife. <laughs> and he said, we don't even have to get married now. <laughs> and I said, yeah, we do have to get married. <laughs> and so, um, so it was a long journey even from there, but once Frank was convicted, once again, he was convicted that I was his wife, and so he was willing to go through what he called my rules and regulations. <laughs> and the biggest one was pre-Cana, which he was like, you know, what is that, you know? Like, and uh, luckily, um, I had asked Monsignor Bassette, who, he was actually in the video, you saw the priest that was sitting next to Frank, that was Monsignor Bassette, and Monsignor is a very good friend of mine, he helped me very much um, with my vocation, in my vocation crisis, and, um, and so he was, he was happy that I was seeing somebody. He wanted me to be happy, and he saw that I was in this relationship, and he knew that it had a lot of problems, um, but he saw that Frank and I were both very passionate people and determined to be happy. And we wanted to, to work through our differences. And so he agreed to go and see Monsignor Abbasette, who was 
waiting for us, which I thought was great because, you know, I thought, you know, Monsignor was late a lot of the times, but this time he was just sitting waiting for us, you know, in the rectory and he's smoking a cigarette and he's all cool and relaxed, you know, and happy. And we walk in and, uh, and Frank said, I introduced him, I said, Monsignor, this is Frank, Frank Monsignor. And, and Monsignor said, call me Lorenzo. <laughs> And Frank was like, okay, cool, Lorenzo. <laughs> and so Frank said, you know, right then and there, he had him, that was it. They, they became instant friends from that moment on. And, and when, you know, and he ended up, you know, we set the day we got married and, and um, walking down the aisle, you know, when, when, when Frank, uh, when I got to the altar and we were standing in front of Monsignor, Monsignor looked straight at Frank, and he said to him, are you sure you want to do this? He said, because you, we can call the whole thing off right now. He said, you know, you sure? And Frank said, I'm sure. And it was, it was, um, it was really a, a very joyful, happy marriage. I mean, it still had its problems, you know. Um, yeah, I think most bookies would not have put short arts on, on that. <laughs> no, not uh, some people didn't, you know. But once they got to know Frank, um, they people loved him like a like a, a member of their family, you know. And he was a he was a brother to many many people. Um, I mean, really. Um, but I don't think I answered your question, did I? <laughs> I think you answered it three times. You know, oh, okay. That's perfect. Okay. No, actually, I wanted to ask you, because you, you used this term conviction. It's in the title of the book itself, Convicted by Mercy. And um, it becomes such an important and strong term. Um, one of the signs or symptoms of conviction, you know, surprised me to hear you speak about it or hear Frank through you. And that was that his conviction, his his. Um, how would you say, his adhering to certain truths about himself and the world actually were a tremendous freedom, a freedom to embrace reality as it truly is, his own reality as it truly is. So this conviction that really fascinated me, I'd love to hear you say something more about it. I'll give you a take that I was, I was bringing to it was I, I had a friend, uh, I have a friend, uh, Jim Kugel, James Kugel, he's a Jewish scholar. He, taught with me at Harvard. He taught the largest course at Harvard. There was like 700 students in the course on the Bible of all things. But, um, so, and he, he wrote when he left to, to take up a position in Tel Aviv in Israel, he wrote a long article in Harvard Magazine where he said that he found over the years that generally the students who came in had really were at a disadvantage to understand and read the Bible or even to uh, read about people's religious experiences because they had lost the religion, I think Josani would say the religious sense. They had lost the ability to see the world in a religious way. And it seemed to me that, that Frank, Frank's series of convictions, as you described them, are these moments of conversion. As he says, when I, when I become convicted and I have a moment of conversion, I realize what God has been doing for me all along. So it's like scales falling from your eyes. And um, uh, Jim Kubel thought that we moderns struggle under a disadvantage of not being able to see the world as a significant place. As When I say significant, I mean really charged with signs of meaning. Whereas um, you and Frank increasingly in this story uh, become sensitive to the world as speaking back to you as charged with meaningful science. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, at one point when Frank is really struggling, he's very, very ill. He's already been ill for quite a while. And it's, it's clearly just a tremendous strain on him, but also on you and all around you. You experience a, a, a sharp pain in your heart. And Frank sees that. He's so, you know, tuned into you. And he places his hand on your heart and he just says seven Hail Marys, something you pointed out that was not his usual practice. He didn't like formulaic practice prayers. He, he liked to freewheel, so to say. And, uh, and also, he didn't like repeating prayers. So to say this uh, Hail Mary seven times. But for you, 
that was a sign, or it became significant because it, it, it called to mind the seven dolors or the seven sorrows of Mary. And in fact, later on, someone provides you a, a, a rosary of the, of the sorrows. Yeah, Father. And, um, and this is the way the two of you proceed. And even Frank's prayers move from seeing himself as saved and by God's mercy. His relationships is now meaningful. And then he goes on to say, my suffering and my fellow sufferers can do this for the whole world. So there's like a magnifying glass where everything starts to take on tremendous meaning through uh, conversion and through conviction. And uh, it reminded me of St. Teresa of Avila who spoke about the world as full of, she used the term, signaturas, uh, signatures. So if you walk down the street, it's still just a cold, alienated space. It's a space that speaks to me where I'm at home, where the ultimate meaning of God's love speaks to me from the beginning of all time to right now in my time of suffering. So I, I wonder if you'd say something more about if, if this resonates at all, how it came to be that you and Frank saw this happen and what would you say to people today who, who just look at the world and it does not speak to them in, in a religious way? Well, Frank and I um, both had a great awareness of our neediness. And so we didn't think that we were enough to satisfy. We gotta share now. That was supposed to be cut off for me. Let me take it out. Um, yeah. So, um, so, so we. Um, oh, that's good. You guys are right on it. I mean, when Frank had Frank had met me when I was at a, a very low point in my life, I'd always been like, always tried to do everything the right way. Um, you know, I, I was a rule follower, you know. Um, and I thought that it was based on what I could do. You know, that was, that was my worth. My worth was in the things that I could accomplish. And, you know, I, I quickly learned through the difficulties that I went through right around the time that I, that I met Frank, that I, I, could, I was at a point I couldn't do anything. You know, I was depressed, I was nervous, I was out of sorts. And, um, and Frank already knew that without God, you can't do anything, you know? So he was kind of like miles ahead of me in that sense. And I think that that's why our relationship worked, is because I needed that experience of uh, total dependence on God. Like I needed to understand that it wasn't, it wasn't what I could do, you know, but it was what Christ could do, you know, with me and through me. Um, and it was that cry that, that, that I released, you know, and that Frank understood so well because he was a man who suffered so deeply. So he, he knew that cry. Um, and he understood instinctively, you know, my need. He just understood it. And I think that my big, and I'm also, I also was convicted by mercy because my, the, the, the biggest need that I had at that point in my life when I felt like a total loser, because I was always a capable person and yet I was having trouble just putting my socks on in the morning, you know? Um, so I was longing for that experience of mercy. And I saw that that's what Frank had. He understood the need for God, the question, and where the answer comes from. And, and he knew that it was a total answer. And then he knew it didn't, he especially knew that it didn't depend on how good he was because he always said it, you know, he said, my mother said that God loves fools and babies, and I don't have to tell you which one of those I am. <laughs> because he made a lot of mistakes in his life, and he suffered a lot because of it. Um, 
But um, am I answering your question? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Oh, absolutely. Uh, just just to continue, I think yep, they, they didn't shut me down after all, so I still, still have something to say with you. Um, yeah, I think it was so striking, he used this phrase uh, that he knows, and he, and, and he spoke about this like a, a rock, a foundation of his being. I know what it's like to beg for my existence. And that sort of, it, it brought to mind the psalm. I think he quotes it actually at a certain point, you know. De profundis clamavo a te, from, from the abyss I cried out to you, my God. That this really meant something to me. He had touched that bottom of that abyss and that was something that was so certain. And God met him in that experience of total annihilation and desolation. And uh, no one could take that from him. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. I, I think that um, something very, very interesting. Um, we were married... Um, in July, and I became pregnant with my oldest son, Micah, uh, in December. And um, Micah was born the following, like, September. And before, I had to have a cesarean section. And Frank was in the hallway, you know, all dressed in the scrubs and everything, you know, when the the husband goes in with you, he's got to get all, you know, scrubbed up, whatever they do to him, masks on, and Chris could explain that better than me. Um, but, uh, so, so he was in the hallway, and then they got me ready for the C-section, then Frank came in, and I was, you know, back like this, and he was here, you know, and then there's the curtain in front of you, whatever, you know, bottom half, they're gonna cut you open and get the baby out, okay? Um, but I was looking at Frank's face and I'd never seen that expression on his face before. It was an expression of complete terror. <laughs> and and, uh, and then he, he, he wanted to talk to me. He wanted to talk to me and, you know, he had like the mask over his face and he said, he kind of leaned down real close to me and he said, I just got real deep with God. <laughs> and I said, me too. And, and so then, and I could still see, you know, and he was still scared, but then, you know, they started cutting into me, whatever, and then Frank, who loved science, and anything, you know, he wasn't afraid of the sight of blood or anything. He became so intrigued by what was going on on the other side that I saw him looking like this and... And I'm like, stop, you know? But he wanted, he's like, it's okay, it's okay, it's fine, it's okay. Um, so anyway, so, so after Mike was born, beautiful baby and... And uh, I said, Frank, I said, what was that you were telling me when, right before Micah was born? Like, what were you saying to me? That you got real deep with God? Like, what? And he said, he said, I have never prayed from the depths of my soul the way that I just prayed in that hallway before I came in. He said, I said, God, Please do not hold my past sins against my wife and my child. And he said, but how do you get to that point of being so deep with God without suffering so much? And I, the only thing I could come up with is like, well, I guess that's why you, you know, the church asks us to fast sometimes, you know, I mean, it's a way of, you know, <laughs> you know, but, 
you know, I'm answering your question, I think, you know, is it's, you know, he, he longed for that experience, that deep experience with Christ. And he kind of saw that it came with the kind of terror in a way, you know, like, because you know you're complete and totally dependent, you know, and he was in that place. And as his life went on, you know, he learned or he desired to embrace the crosses that came with his life further down the line, which as you all know, um, first he was very, very excited. Um, it was like around, I think 2009 or 2010. And he said, you know, he just told me one day, God is getting ready to ask something real big of me. And he said, I don't know what it is, but I know he's gonna ask something real big of me. And it was right after that, that he'd said that, that Chris Fath, who is uh, the director of the choir and kind of uh, leads the organization of the Way of the Cross over the Brooklyn Bridge, he called the house and he asked Frank, would you lead the procession of the Way of the Cross over the Brooklyn Bridge? Would you carry the cross and lead us? And Frank said yes, and he was so excited and so happy about that. And the way that he lived that experience, as if he were born for that moment to carry that cross over the bridge. He, he, he felt like he'd finally found you know, what it was that God was asking of him, and it really excited him. And every year he would wait for that call, and those of you who know Chris Bath, he keeps you hanging on there, you know, waiting. <laughs> <laughs> and Frank would wait with great anticipation to get the call to be asked to carry the cross over the Brooklyn Bridge because he never assumed it. He never assumed that he was, he was going to do it. He knew that he had to be asked and he would wait for that. And then after four or so years of carrying the cross over the bridge, we found out that Frank had cancer. He was diagnosed with neuroendocrine carcinoma and uh, Renzo Canetta, uh, he, he knew this cancer, friend of ours. I think he's probably in this audience somewhere, Renzo. And, um, and Renzo knew that there were only two drugs that were gonna work for this kind of cancer. And he came to our house all the way from Connecticut, sat down with us in our living room with big notebooks, big binder notebooks, and he explained in detail Frank's cancer and the treatments, the only treatments that would work. And so when we went to the oncologist that we had to go to because of our union, we had a particular oncologist that was assigned uh, in network, uh, the oncologist said, uh, well, you know, you're gonna have to take, you know, this regular chemo and you probably won't live six months. That's what he said. And Frank said, well, I got some information from a friend of mine, Dr. Lorenzo Canetta, and, uh, and he explained to me that there's only two types of drugs that are gonna work with this, and Frank explained the whole thing, as if he were a doctor himself. I mean, he took it all in, and, and this, this oncologist was just, flabbergasted, like he didn't know what to say or to do. And he said, well, uh, I, I guess we better find you another doctor, you know? <laughs> and so we went through all of the struggles that you have to go through with insurance and, you know, finding the doctors and, and uh, it, was, it was just very, very difficult to uh, navigate the, the health care system with Frank's illness, and then of course, you know, he'd go to the doctor, they'd see like the track marks on his arms, you know, from when he used drugs, and you know, a lot of times they didn't want to pay that much attention to him, you know, because they just thought, well, you know, he deserves it or something, you know, he's a drug addict, you know. You did get that feeling a lot of times, but not everybody, some some of the doctors and the, the nurse practitioners were, uh, wonderful, and they and and they were really inspired by Frank and by the desire that he had to live. And he said many times, you know, if you think about how I wanted to throw my life away when I wanted to jump in front of those train tracks, and now I'm fighting to save it. 
So that was another bridge that he crossed, you know. Um, it, you know, he noticed the contrast mm -hmm. in himself, like, you know, and he was amazed. And he always said that, I'm amazed, I'm amazed, you know. Yeah. That, that sense of wonder and amazement is something that really is a lesson. Uh, at one time, there was a debate between uh, uh, the, the novelist, uh, what was his name, uh, Henry Woke, the guy who wrote The Cane Mutiny, and um, he wrote a number of beautiful books. He was from the Bronx and a Jewish family. His grandfather was a, a very strictly observant rabbi. And he had a, a fictional dialogue he created with Richard Feynman, who was a physicist, Nobel Prize winning physicist from MIT, who also grew up in the Bronx, who also had a grandfather from Eastern Europe, Yiddish speaking, very strictly observant. But they had both grown up kind of secular, so that somewhere in their family they made this transition from that sense of religious world that speaks to them to something that didn't. And Feynman put it this way, he said, the human drama is just not equal to the majesty of the cosmic stage. And Woke, who was a, uh, a playwright, among other things, says, you just don't understand the grandness of the human drama. And I think that Frank's story, as you tell it, reminds us that the human drama belongs on the cosmic stage. Frank is suffering, particularly from that moment that you say, and, and, and when he moves into Calvary, and, and he's really on his last day to this hospice where he spent his last days, uh, the moment becomes more and more concentrated, and his expressions about his experience become more and more, I thought, luminous, just almost incandescent with the love that he had of God, that the love he experienced from God, the love of you and the family and all of his relationships, and right away to the whole world. You know, he was not gonna stop just with, you know, human social relations or something. This was transforming the universe. So this ability to spring back and forth between the pain of the moment and in united with Jesus' suffering, the transformation of the cosmos it seemed to me something that he felt very, very deeply. And you convey this remarkably in that story. So um, I think that's a lesson to us. I think that's not an easy sensibility, especially if you're the one either suffering the pain or as close as you were to him. You know, we, we have all maybe been through this kind of struggle with our loved ones or ourselves. Is that the moment when you can maintain that luminous sense of love? I think it's very unusual. And I have to say it's to my mind, just reading it, not knowing either of you, it was tremendously buoyant and sustaining. Well, the one thing that was very beautiful, what I got a chance to witness and what we all got a chance to see um, was that Frank was a man who was always open to being changed. He was always open to conversion. And he often said, you know, if I'm saying something wrong, correct me. He didn't have a problem with being corrected because he so desired um, to be in union with, with, with Christ. He desired the truth. And I remember, um, again, being convicted again and again and again. And there were several moments throughout his illness where, you know, he changed. He became, like, for example, um, when we first got married, the TV was always, was always on, and he was always watching something on TV. And, you know, a lot of times it was annoying to me because I don't like to have the TV on all the time, as many of you know. <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, he, you know, when he, when he started to become sick, I would go into the room and the TV was not on. The room was silent. And he would be praying constantly. He would be in constant dialogue with God. And I was like, that's a big change to go from watching the TV all, I mean, you could be bored, right? You're sick, you're laying in bed, put the TV on. No, he didn't want that. He didn't want the TV anymore. He wanted to be in dialogue. And um, 
But in December, the, so he, he was in and out of the hospital a lot. Fluid was building up in his lungs and, you know, back and forth, back and forth, getting his, his lungs drained. And my sister Regina came up from Virginia. She's a nurse practitioner and she helped me to set up the bedroom so that we could take care of him better because he was really getting quite sick. And um, he still wanted to continue his chemo. And we all knew that the chemo was not good for him at this stage, but he really, really wanted to live. He, didn't, he wasn't resigned to die yet, not even at that point, you know. And um, so he continued his chemo, and the doctors were like, if he wants it, let him have it. You know, they seemed resigned, you know. And so it was the early, beginning of December 2014, and he was kind of almost leaving us, you know. He wasn't responding anymore, and we're having a hard time, you know, moving him around, giving him his pain medication, and, and we thought, this is it, you know, he's gonna go. And he um, came out of it. He came out of it. A lot of people were praying. The Sisters of Life were praying that I got a message on my answering machine from the Mother Superior of the Sisters of Life, and she said, Rita, don't worry, 90 nuns are praying for Frank, you know? <laughs> and and uh, I remember Regina and I were in the room, we were trying to help him sit up to take his pain medication, and he was, you know, he wasn't able to sit up. And his eyes were closed and everything, and, and uh, I said, Frank, Frank, 90 nuns are praying for you. And he opened up his eyes and he saw Regina and I like, you know, moving him around on the, on the bed pad there, the chuck, is that what it's called, you know? And, um, and he opened his eyes and he looks at Regina, he looks at me and he says, what are you all trying to do? <laughs> and I said, Frank, and we were like happy because he responded like with a strong voice, you know. And we're like, Frank, we're trying to set you up so you can take your pain medication. And he says, well, why didn't you just say so? And he hikes himself right up in bed. And then he said, 90 nuns praying and you two can't even do a simple thing? <laughs> and so he was back. I mean, he was back and he... Uh, you know, he uh, went into the, the living room, he got up, he walked into the living room, he was eating, he was talking to people on the phone, he was, um, I mean, he's still very weak, you know, because all, he was almost dead, you know? Uh, and, he, and he made a video and he said, the first words out of his mouth, I am a changed man. And that spoke volumes. He said, I am a changed man. And he was. He had changed so much, even in that short period of time. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Something beautiful uh, I want to um, mention. Uh, in the book, uh, there was a letter that was written by our friend Ted Oberman um, because Frank, he got sicker and sicker and eventually had to go into the hospice, into Calvary Hospice. He didn't want to go to hospice, he wanted to die at home. Um, but it was getting really, really hard for me to take care of him. And, and uh, after he had another episode where he couldn't breathe, we had to go take him to the hospital again and have the lungs drained. He came home and I asked him if he'd be willing to do um, in, inpatient hospice. And he said, what does that mean? And I said, well, instead of the nurses coming to us, you'll be there with them so that when you have a breathing crisis, um, you know, they'll be able to take care of you right away. You know, you won't struggle to breathe. 
and I said, will you, will you go? We got to put you on a wait list. You know, there's only 25 beds in this facility. And, and he said, okay. So I was like, thank God. You know, so I put him on the wait list. And it was, it was two days before Christmas. And Frank was having a really good day. He was calling everybody and chatting. And, and um, he was eating and joking. And, and then I get the call from Calvary. They have a bed. And they warn me, if you turn the bed down, you won't get it again. So here he's feeling real good, and I have to tell him that he's going to be admitted to a hospice. So I said, uh, Frank, um, the ambulance is coming. We have a bed at Calvary. He said, what are you talking about? He didn't remember. And I explained it to him again. He said, you're trying to put me out of my home. And I said, no, honey. I said, this is the best place for you. And I tried to explain. And, and then I realized, you know, Frank was really another thing. As you mentioned, he was a man of his freedom. He was a man of his freedom. And I was not going to force it. Like, if he really didn't want to go, I would find a way to take care of him. So I said, OK, if you really don't want to go, then we'll work it out. And my mother's in the background going. <laughs> and she's crying at the same time, you know. And, um, and so I started praying. I didn't know what else to do. And then my brother-in-law, Ken, called. And he's, he's like, hey, I hear Frank's doing good today. How is he? Da, da, da. And I said, well, the ambulance is on its way to take him to Calvary, and he doesn't want to go. And Ken says, let me talk to him. I was so surprised by the sternness in Ken's voice. So I put, I put him on speakerphone, and, and then I heard these words that I, I never imagined I would hear. Ken said, Frank, your wife can't take care of you anymore. You have to go to the hospice. And I thought, you know, I would never have been able to say those words. I would never have been able to say those words. And so Frank said, okay. And then the doorbell rings, and that's it. They strap him into a chair. And I said, does he need to bring anything? And he said, nope, we're good to go. Carried him out the door, put him in the ambulance, and then, um, and he was mad. He was angry with me. And when, we, when I got into the hospital, I, I asked my friend Rachel, you know, to, to meet us there, because I was going to follow in the car. And, uh, and it was, he was sitting up in his bed. It was a beautiful room. It was very clean. It was sun coming in the window. And he was very angry and very proud. He was sitting in his bed. And I thought, and he looked just like an African king on a throne. I mean, he was so proud and so angry with me. And, and I'd never seen him that mad at me before. I mean, this was, the, this was the height. This was the peak of his anger. And he's looking at me. and. And, uh, and the social worker came in, is everything okay? And I broke down and cried. I said, after 11 and a half years of marriage, my husband has never looked at me with such hatred in his eyes. And she said, don't worry, it happens all the time. Let me talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I said, um, so she goes in, and she's only in there for like five or 10 minutes. And I'm like, what's she going to accomplish in five or ten minutes, you know? She doesn't. So she goes, Rita, your husband has something he wants to tell you. And so I said, okay, here we go. So I go in, he's still sitting up, very proud. And she says, Frank, tell your wife what you told me. And he said, I will not leave this world hating my wife. <laughs> Beautiful. And then the next day, Christmas, Christmas morning, he had a crisis, he couldn't breathe. He called me up and he said, thank God I was here. And after that, he was the most um, joyful person I think Calvary Hospital has ever seen. 
and he called for people to come to see him and people came to him at all times of the night and uh, we celebrated New Year's Eve there at the hospice and I just wanted to um, just read a part of this uh, from, from Ted Oberman's testimony um, talking about uh, New Year's Eve. And he's, he says that this, this past New Year's Eve, a group of us spent the hours approaching midnight with Frank and Rita Simmons at the hospice. Frank would pass from this world a few weeks later. The evening slipped by doing what we would do most other New Year's. Everyone had brought some food or drink and we passed the time talking and then singing. Um, Frank was quiet most of the evening, his breath labored. And at certain points, we thought that this might be his last night. Rita did rouse him a few times, and seeing us, he would draw the words, my friends, from within. Of the people in the room that evening, all knew, then this is to answer your question, by the way. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Of the people in the room that evening, all knew Frank longer and more intimately than I did. Before he became sick, I had probably met Frank but a dozen times or so, usually at a large function with many of the same people there on New Year's Eve. That Frank and I became friends during this time in his, in his life is nothing but a miracle to me. For my experience with those who are dying, is that they usually withdraw inward. Had Frank done that, I would never have had the absolute joy in being his friend. In honesty, I was always surprised at how Frank valued my friendship, which really had started with an impromptu visit during one of his hospital stays. But once Frank claimed you as a friend, you were blessed with that title, no matter how unworthy you might feel. <laughs> so, um, I think, you know, when I think about, you know, Frank passing into eternal life, um, and many people ask me, well, you know, do you sometimes wish that he were here? And, and, um, and to be honest, I witnessed Frank's transformation. I saw how much he was already a part of that other world where, which I'm not privy to right now. But I saw it. And I realized that he had a place that he had to go. And I realized now, seeing all of you sitting here, and you who've just started this friendship with Frank, but it's a real friendship, you know. Um, Frank wants to be friends with many, many more people than he was able to be friends with while he walked the earth. And he desires each person's friendship in his very unique and personal way. Um, so if you're here, I think it's safe to say is because Frank wants to have a friendship with you. He wants to have a deep and lasting friendship with you. And it's really a beautiful friendship. It's a powerful friendship. Uh, it's a friendship full of strength and certainty. And I'm so happy that I could be here and that I could invite so many of you, you know, to pursue this path. Um, so yeah. that's really what I want to say. Rita, thank you so much for your reflections. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.